Part twenty four of Washington and the Riddle of Peace by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, the sieve for good intentions. Washington, December nine. I went to hear the President address Congress on its reassembling on Tuesday. He spoke to a joint session of the Senate and House of Representatives, held, as is customary, in the Chamber of Representatives, because it is the larger of the two chambers. Hitherto my observations have centred upon the Continental Building and the Pan-American Building, up by the White House, and they have concerned the good intentions and great projects that glow and expand like great iridescent bubbles upon the conference that is going on in this region. But the conference, whatever freedom it has to think and discuss, has no power to act. Until the Senate, by a two-thirds majority, has endorsed the recommendations of the President, the United States cannot be committed to any engagement with the outside world. This is a fact that needs to be written in large letters as a perpetual reminder in the editorial rooms and diplomatic offices of all those Europeans who write about or deal with the foreign relations of the United States. For the Constitution of the United States is as carelessly read over there as the Anglo-Japanese alliance has been read here, and it is as dangerously misconceived. Through that first disastrous year of the peace Europe imagined that the President was the owner rather than the leader of the United States. It was with great interest and curiosity, therefore, that I went down to this assembly at the Capitol to see the President dealing with his legislature. Here was the place not of suggestions but of decisions. What goes through here is accomplished and done, subject only to one thing, the recognition by the Supreme Court, if it is challenged, that the thing is constitutional. I went down with, what shall I say, some prejudiced expectations. The Americans resemble the English very closely in one particular. They abuse their own institutions continually. Prohibition and the police. But these are outside my scope. I have heard scarcely a good word for Congress since I landed here, and the Senate, by the unanimous testimony of the conversationalists of the United States, combines the ignoble with the diabolical in a peculiarly revolting mixture. Even individual senators have admitted as much, with a sinister pride. It is exactly how we talk about Parliament in London, though with more justice. But this sort of talk soaks into the innocent from abroad, and, though one takes none of it seriously, the whole of it produces an effect. I had the feeling that I was going to see a gathering of wreckers, a barrier, perhaps an insurmountable barrier, in the way of the realization of any dream of America taking her place as the leading power in the world, as the first embodiment of the new thing in international affairs. It puts all this sort of feeling right to see these two bodies in their proper home, and to talk to these creatures of legend, the representatives and the senators. One perceives they are not a malignant subspecies of mankind. One discovers a concourse of men very interested about, and unexpectedly open-minded upon, foreign policy. They are critical, but not hostile, to the new projects and ideas. One realizes that Congress is not a blank barrier, but a sieve, and probably a very necessary sieve for the new international impulse in America. 
The ceremonial of the gathering was simple and with the dignity of simplicity. The big galleries for visitors, which always impressed the British observer by their size, were full of visitors after their kind, ladies predominating, and particularly full was the press gallery, which overhangs the speaker and the presidential chair. Some faint vestige of a sound religious upbringing had reminded me that the first are sometimes last and the last first. I had fallen into the tale of the procession of my fellow newspaper men from their special room to the House of Representatives, and so I found myself with the overflow of the journalists, not with everything under my chin, but very conveniently seated on the floor of the House, behind the representatives, and feeling much more like a congressman than I could otherwise have done. Away to the right were the members of the cabinet. The British visitor always has to remind himself that they cannot be either representatives or senators. Presently the ninety-odd senators came in by the central door, two by two, and were distributed upon the seats in front of their hosts, the representatives. There was applause, and I saw Sir Auckland Geddes, with that large bare smile of his, and the rest of the British delegation entering from behind the chair, for the delegations had also been invited to come down from the unrealities of the conference, and had been assigned the front row of seats. Other delegations followed and seated themselves. At last came a hush and the clapping of hands, and the President entered and went to his place, looking extremely like a headmaster coming in to address the school assembly at the beginning of the term. He is more like George Washington in appearance, I perceive, than any intervening president. He read his address in that effective voice of his, which seems to get everywhere without an effort. I listened attentively to every sentence of it, although I knew that upstairs there would be a printed copy of it for me as soon as the delivery was over. Yet, although I was listening closely, I also found I was thinking a great deal about this most potent gathering, for potent it is, which has been raised up now to a position of quite cardinal importance in human affairs. President Harding is on what are nowadays for a president exceptionally good terms with Congress. He means to keep so. In his address he reiterated his point that even the full constitutional powers of the president are too great, and that he has no intention to use them, much less to strain them. Nevertheless, or even in consequence of that, he is very manifestly the leader of his legislature. The atmosphere was non-contentious. He was not like a party leader speaking to his supporters and the opposition. He was much more like America soliloquizing. His address was a statement of intentions. I think the President feels that, officially, he is not so much the elect of America as the voice of America, and instead of wanting to make that voice say characteristic and epoch-making things, he tries to get as close as he can to the national thought and will. What President Harding says today, America will do tomorrow. One human and amusing thing he did, he was careful to drag in that much-disputed word of his, normalcy, which he has resolved, apparently, shall oust out normality from the current English. And from the point of view of those who are concerned about the dark troubles of the world outside America, it was, I think, a very hopeful address. 
it reinforced the impression i had already received of president harding as a man feeling his way carefully but steadily towards great ends america's growing recognition of her inescapable relationship to world finance and trade came early and his little lecture on the need to give and take in foreign trade was a lecture that is being repeated in every main street in america he spoke of russia and returned to that topic we do not forget the tradition of russian friendship was a good sentence that some countries in europe may well mark the growing belief in america of the possibility of going into russia through the agency of the american relief administration and of getting to deal with the revived cooperative organizations of russia is very notable and though there was no mention of the association of nations as such there were allusions to the world hope centered upon this capital city and to the universal desire for permanent peace and while i listened i was also thinking of all these men immediately before me between four and five hundred men including the ninety-six senators with whom rested the power of decision upon the role america will play in the world i have met and talked now with a number of them and particularly with quite a fair sample of the senatorial body and i think now that it is going to be a much better body for international purposes than my reading about it before i came to washington has led me to suppose we hear too much in europe of the rule of jobs and interests in washington no doubt that sort of thing goes on here as in every legislature but it has to be borne in mind that it has very little bearing upon the international situation it is not a matter affecting the world generally i doubt if there is nearly as much business and financial intrigue in the lobbies of washington as in the lobbies of westminster but anyhow what there is here is essentially a domestic question both representatives and senators approach international questions as comparatively free if rather inexperienced men probably the only strong permanent force hitherto in international affairs here has been the anti-british vote based on the irish hate of britain if the irish settlement weakens or abolishes that congress will deal with the world's affairs without any perceptible bias at all the average senator is a prosperous intelligent american thinking man elected to the senate upon political grounds that have no bearing whatever upon international affairs he is an amateur in matters international a bitter political issue at home may make him do any old thing with international affairs and that was the situation during the last years of president wilson poor war-battered europe became a pawn in a constitutional struggle but the harding regime is to be one of cooperation with the senate and the dignity of the senate is restored this very various assembly of vigorous-minded americans for that and other reasons is getting to grips now with international questions with all the freshness and vigor of good amateurs with a detached disinterestedness a growing sense of responsibility and the old peace-enforcing traditions of america strong in it if only it does not delay things too long i doubt if those who desire to see the peace of the world organized and secure are likely to have any quarrel with the senate of the united states the worst evil i fear from the american senate now that i have seen something of it individually and collectively is the impartial leisureliness of the detached in its dealings with international affairs 
The president finished his discourse, and the stir of dispersal began. I had assisted at America reviewing her position in the world. I thought the occasion simple and fine and dignified. I found myself leaving the capital in a mood of quite unanticipated respect. End of Part 24